0: said that renovations would be easy? I mean, maybe somebody has said that if you watch some TV, but uh, most of us know that they take longer than half an hour and uh, don't always have just one carefully curated moment of tension where things don't quite work out and it's immediately overcome. Uh, no, if you've done actual renovations in a house, and you know, if you've heard me talk about them before, I certainly have talked a bit from the stage about doing them, um, there's usually a few more problems that you'd expect. And uh, so as we've been going through um, renovating our attic, We've been trying to put in some insulation, and so to put in the insulation, though, you need to put in some venting first. And insulation, of course, if you want to go with a good insulation, um, you probably know spray foam is pretty good stuff. Um, And if you want to put venting up before the spray foam, you need to make sure you put up a kind that the spray foam will not melt (laughs) when it's applied. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be available in this city. So now we're in a situation of like, do we mail order it? Do we drive two hours away? And I'm just like, why is it so hard to get the right thing for the job? Why is it so hard to get the right thing to build this thing properly? As we have been going through the series and the Psalms, and I've been preparing the different passages. Um, we started last week with a Psalm of Lament, a Psalm when things were not going well and asking God what's going on. And uh, that, that, that is often the most relatable place to be, right? It's the place that we find ourselves is, okay, th- things are not in the place they should be. Th- things are not good. I'm going to be honest talking to God about that. Um, when we go to Psalms, the structure of the book, the way that we approach it first, is we don't have to search for how things should be. We don't have to search for, well, where is the wisdom for how I'm going to build my life? How am I going to make it right? Maybe if I really dig in the Bible, God will have it in there somewhere. It's not like some part you have to order from two hours away or mail order or something like this attic thing. Where God's wisdom is, is it's, it's right and clear. It's in the beginning of the book. This genre that we have here of psalms and proverbs, of Ecclesiastes and Lamentation, we have these songs and wisdom literature that are together. And they're specifically given to, to us to be for teaching, for building our lives on, for having a firm foundation and a solid structure. And when the, the psalms were put together, right, the psalms were written all the way from Moses all the way to Solomon and beyond, right? So the the Psalms span this incredibly huge time period. When they took Psalms 1 and 2, way after the time of David, way after Solomon, into the exile when God's people were living in a foreign land, and they said, let's put Psalms 1 and 2 in the front of the book. Let's start with these two Psalms. Do you know why they did that? Because these are the foundation. These are what some people call the gateway to the Psalms. These are the way that you start and you go, okay, this is what it's all about. About building your life on God. About finding his wisdom and knowing who he is. So we're going to have some images that come up in here. We're going to have some wording that comes up in here. And it's going to get repeated over and over through the entire book of Psalms. And it's going to talk about what it's like to build your life on God and his wisdom. And who God is as the ruling king. So Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates in his law day and night. This isn't a fancy word for blessed. It's not even talking specifically so much about divine blessing. It's just saying happy. If you want to be happy, this is the Hebrew for that. And here it's connected to obedience. It's connected to obeying God's law. Now, as New Testament Christians, we can read this and go, well, okay, I know like, that I can't fulfill the law. And of course, you know, Christ is the only one that perfectly can. And when I accept Jesus' righteousness, right, that this is what, uh, what makes me righteous. But the idea here is that we have a relationship with God, a closeness with God, by knowing what God wants and delighting it. By saying, God, I, I, know, I know who you are as revealed by what you want. The things that you've laid out, the precepts you've laid out, the principles, the ways to act and not act, those are things that delight you and lead to life. It's not just about obeying rules. It's about finding delight in that and actually being happy because of a relationship with you. And it's based upon knowing who you are and living by your word. And as New Testament Christians, right, we get this wonderful privilege of Jesus has given us his righteousness. We're not obeying God's rules to somehow earn our righteousness, not for acceptance, has been said very often, we're working from acceptance. We're working from righteousness. Jesus has bestowed his righteousness on us, and we get to live these lives of grateful obedience. So we can be people in the New Testament whose delight is still in the law of the Lord and his ways. This idea of delight, too, is great. We don't start psalms with duty. We don't start psalms with, well, happy is the person who slogs it through and just happens to, like, check every box and is like, fine, God, I've done everything you want. No, the Psalms actually start with delight. It actually starts with joy, it starts with dancing. Uh, This weekend we ended up being at Rotary Fest, which was uh, plan B for us, but I'm kinda glad that it worked out. And you know what my kids do when they hear music? They start to dance, right? They start to dance. And man, I love that, right? It's just this instinctive, hey, there's music, I'm happy, I'm gonna move. There's a delight that we have in that, this instinctual delight in that, this instinct to have delight to move. And when we come to Psalms, we find this not dryness and obedience and duty. We find Psalms written by people who love God and they have a delight in him. And Psalm 1 doesn't waste any time. It says, find the same delight. Like, this is here for you. Your delight can also be in God and all who he is, in God and what he's written down, in God's ways written down for our benefit. Our delight can come from there. One person said, in their opinion, the most valuable things the Psalms do for me is express that same delight that which made David dance. Right? David, who wrote a lot of the Psalms, he was the king who danced in worship, in a simple garment like all the servants would have worn. And he said, I'm going to become even more undignified than this. And the person who wrote the quote goes on to say, against the, you know, the merely dutiful kind of church-going, it stands out as something astonishingly robust, virile, and spontaneous. Something we can look at with an innocent envy and hope to be infected by as we read it. I definitely have this innocent kind of envy when I read Psalms. I'm like, man, I want to know God like this. I don't want to live in just this kind of gray, middle, twilight where I kind of feel things and kind of don't. But like when the Bible says to like, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, I think the Bible actually means it. There are supposed to be people that have the ability to really delight, to really be happy, to really have joy, and to really mourn when things are not going well. So I think that the discipline of celebration, the spiritual discipline of celebration, is such a valuable one to have in our culture today. Our culture most often says things like, every day we can indulge in a bunch of little small things, right, that we're gonna live lives that every day we're just saying yes to all of our different appetites. And it becomes this kind of monotony almost of pleasure, right, that we're trying that every day, we're just trying to indulge ourselves in small ways. when." In almost every area of life, whether it's you're trying to get fit or you're trying to save money or just in general being, trying to ration your energy, the idea is, is you discipline yourself. You don't always do everything you want, but then there are seasons of celebration, right? After every week, there is a Sabbath. After every season of work and harvest, there is a festival. And so I love, too, when I go to these community celebrations like Rotary Fest, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to eat the ribs yeah, I'm going to get some lemonade and cotton candy and ice cream and whatever else, because I don't do this every day. But when there's celebration, like, let's have some celebration, right? And I want to be able to not only delight in that, that natural thing that all people share, that all humanity shares, but say, God, I I know how to mourn. I feel like that comes kind of naturally, but God, would you teach me to delight in you? Would you teach me to have this, not just like, yep, check the boxes, but like, God, I want to I want to have joy. I want to have delight. You say there's happiness for people here, like that's the first word you say in the Psalms? Absolutely. God, I want that. And God says that this is not the kind of thing that makes you weak. This is not being an emotional person who's blown by every wind of teaching and just, you know, subject to your your feelings. Well, this is actually a disciplined way to gain strength, this delight in the law of the Lord, this delight in his ways. So verse 3 says, this person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Man, I love that image, right? Like, if there's ever anything to aim for, like, I, I would love to be that tree. I have a plaque in my office. And I brought it, I brought it out here. And it's from J.R.R. Tolkien. And if you ever read The Lord of the Rings, right, you know that this is the poem about Strider, the ranger who turns out to actually be Aragorn, the king, Right? And if you've ever heard that poem, it's, all that is gold does not glitter. Not all who wander are lost. And it goes on, and it says, deep roots are not reached by the frost. That's the image we get here in Proverbs, right? Deep roots are not touched by the frost. I want to be that person that, yeah, there's going to be seasons. Verse 3 talks about it. But I'm going to yield its fruit in season. And when there's winter, I'm not afraid about that. My leaf's not going to wither. Man, this idea that you can be a person of productivity in life, not because you're frantically trying to make it, you're not trying to gain favor from God, you're not somebody who's trying to just, you know, grind as hard as you can because then maybe you'll make it, but that God's planted you and that you can bear fruit because of that, man, that's what I want to be. Whatever they do prospers. And that doesn't discount the seasons, right? There's going to be good seasons and bad seasons. There's going to be summer. Like I grew up in Niagara, you know, it's like fruit season right now. Everything's going crazy and there's apples and cherries and peaches. But in the winter, there's going to be frost, right? There's going to be good seasons and bad seasons. And what God promises here in Psalms is a life that can not only endure through good seasons and bad seasons, that only stays connected to God, the source of life, but is a life that brings life through every season. God's able to do that. he talks about this for the person that loves him and loves his law and so this is the gate right psalms one and two this is the gate to the entire book of psalms and god is giving us an invitation to enter through this gate into the book enter into the life that he has for us even as we begin reading this we got a choice to make right do i want to be this person and if you want to be this person if this is the life that you seek if this is the kind of person that you want to be then come on in but then there's also a warning for those who don't want to do this. Verse 4, contrasts the wicked. So if the righteous are like a tree, right, deep roots, not so the wicked, verse 4. They are like the chaff the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Which one do I want to be? Do I want to be the weeds in my garden, or do I want to be that oak tree that grew from a little acorn right in our property line? I know who I want to be. And so the Psalms invite us to come through this gate, through chapters one and two, and say, this is the life shaped by God. This is the life of delight in the Lord. You're going to get a glimpse of people like David and the sons of Korah and uh, Asaph and people who wrote and said, this is the relationship with God. This is the delight in who he is. And you'll read worship, and you'll read lament, and you'll read wisdom, you'll read royal psalms. The next one's actually a royal psalm, which is pretty neat, it's a a kingship psalm. And all of it's gonna point you towards, if you wanna be a wise person, if you wanna be a happy person, you can be here. The same invitation goes to us today, right? That Jesus, if you accepted Jesus, he'll save you. He'll raise you up to new life. And you can still decide, what am I gonna do with this? Am I gonna continue to seek God? Am I gonna follow him all the days of my life? Am I going to have the spirit of wisdom speaking truth into my life? Or am I going to be like, okay, God, you've checked that box, I'm saved, and I just kind of want to coast. If you ever planted trees in an orchard or if you've ever done any kind of gardening, right? You need to have some supports for things to grow up first. But then after every season, as, as things continue to grow and take on nourishment, and they're battered by the wind, which is part of their growth, right? Hard seasons are still part of growth. They begin to take on a strength of their own. And you can decide that when you're saved, again, through no effort of your own, no power of your own, do you want to continue into the path of maturity? Do you want to listen to the Holy Spirit who wants to, f- wants to fill you and bring fruit and actually walk with you through the good and bad seasons and bring wisdom and maturity out of those? Because God is always having the same invitation to us. Do you want to become this person? Do you want to have this life? Because it doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen if we go, eh, one path is as good as another. Eh, one response to things being hard is as good as another. Eh, one source of truth is as good as another. God's very clear here. This is about his ways, his paths. So what he says about, in this wisdom literature and all these books, about him, the world, our money, identity, our bodies, the nature of sin, the nature of holiness, relationships—all of these things we have the choice to make. Are we going to say, "No, God, I, I've got this," or are we going to say, "You know what? I'm coming in through the door of humility. I'm gonna say I'm gonna be happy because I'm placing my trust in you because I'm gonna delight in what you said, not because of what my own ideas are." So the second psalm, the kingship psalm. Is a really neat one. It talks about God's authority, that He is the one who has the authority to say what is and isn't wisdom. He has the authority to say what does and doesn't go. And again, right, Psalms was put together over a really long time. There's Psalms from Moses, there's Psalms from David, there's Psalms from Solomon, and there's Psalms written way later in exile when Israel had been uprooted from their country and taken to a foreign land. And when they finally put together the final arrangement of Psalms, they put Psalm 2 in the front. And this was a kingship psalm originally. This would have been one where as the new king is being crowned, as they were in Israel, they were putting the new king on the throne, they would have re- read this and sung this and had this be the psalm of kingship. But even as the book of Psalms finishes, they don't have a king. Even as the book of Psalms is being finally put together in its final form, there isn't going to be a king on Israel's throne. They're not even in their country anymore. So even as they're putting this together in the final form of the book, we're reading this going, okay, well, if there's not a king in Israel, what does this point to? What does this mean? So I'm going to read Psalm 2, and then we're going to draw out some of that. So Psalm 2, again, originally a kingship psalm for one of the new kings would have came in and would have been anointed, but we're reading this now kind of after Israel's out of their land, after there's not a king on Israel's throne anymore. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them into pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, the posture of surrender, right? That you're surrendering to a king. Or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. And his wrath will flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Because here God's strength can be either your refuge or your destruction. And it speaks originally to everybody, not just to Israel or not just the people around Israel, but it's saying to everyone, you can position yourself against the king of the universe or with him. And if you position yourself against the king of the universe, which is God in heaven, it's always going to be a losing proposition. And so originally is there... In a a, a royal coronation, new king's coming on the throne. They're like, oh yeah, you know, and God has this anointed one. He has somebody who's coming on the throne, and he's going to rule Israel justly, right? He's going to fend off any invaders. Israel wasn't an empire trying to always extend its borders. But Israel had people that would come against them and would try to attack them. So people who would originally read the psalm, they're like, oh yeah, God has his anointed one, and he's going to rule just like God rules in heaven, and God's going to give him strength to keep the borders of our land safe. what do you do when Israel's in exile? What do you do when there's a people who have disobeyed God? They have not walked in the ways of wisdom. They have not taken delight in the law of the Lord. And God has brought them into exile. They go, what are we looking forward to here? And so this psalm being put in the front of the book does a couple things. One, it points again to God's absolute rule, right? That this is still the God we serve. Even though there's not a king on Israel's throne, the God of the universe is still on the throne. Even though the political situation isn't what we hoped, even though we don't see how it's working out right now in flesh and blood, God, you are still the king of kings. You are still the Lord of lords, and you are still the one that we are not going to oppose. But God, we want to be surrendered to you. And one of the great things that happened when Israel in exile was the strengthening of the Jewish people in their identity as people who loved God and would obey him and not any other. Just as Daniel, right, was thrown of the lion's den because he's like, I'm not going to bow down and worship the king, right? Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and, Abed- and Abednego were saying, I'm not going to bow down to the statue. That began to characterize a whole people that were in Babylon, a whole people that were in exile, saying, no, 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 we're going to worship the Lord our God and serve him only. We're going to have a delight in the law of the Lord. And so even when Israel is in exile, when they're in Babylon, God is forming them into a people of Psalm 1. Because he's still the God of Psalm 2. God is forming them into a people who are happy and have a delight in him. Who look for his salvation. And so when those people look to, look to Psalm 2, they go, you know what? God's still on the throne. I believe he's still going to bring an anointed one. And so in the New Testament, after Jesus come in Acts chapter 4, they look at Psalm 2 and they say in Acts 4, this is about Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the one who is the king. Jesus is the one who is the Messiah. And this is good news, right? In the Old Testament, you're saying, here's a God of the universe who's different than the other gods. He doesn't require human sacrifice. He's not up one day and down the next. He is consistent and pure and good and full of wisdom, and he's loving. And in the New Testament, the God in heaven, as shown in Jesus, is not like your emperors. He's not like those who think that they are gods but are not. But Jesus is the one who does not crush people through power. He defeats death by dying and rising again. The goodness of God and the uniqueness of his kingship is shown in both the Old and the New Testament. Here is your God, and he is good. He is worth following. Happiness is found in following him. Life is found in following him. And he's such a good God. And the rulers of the earth may rage against it, but ultimately they'll be shown for what they are. Cruel, vengeful, petty, petty and powerless against the king of the universe. So that's why in Revelation, you get Psalm 2 imagery again. Revelation actually says in uh, 12 verse 5 that you will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery, referring to Christ's second coming. And that is when, again, Christ looks at the rulers of of, of the world, the human rulers, who have oppressed people, who have shed innocent blood, who have oppressed the saints, who have martyred people, and says, no more. Your judgment is coming. And so, again, in Revelation chapter chapter 12, you have Jesus coming, and he is the ruler, referenced in Psalm 2. So just as Acts 4 picks it up and says, this is Jesus, Revelation picks this up and says, this is Jesus. So the book of Psalms uses images like this for a reason. The book of Psalms does not just want to fill our brains with information, right? As one person said, the book of Psalms does not only want to inform our intellect— but to stimulate our imagination, arouse our emotions, and stir us on to holy thoughts and actions. That's by Tremper Longman III, which is probably the coolest name of anybody who's wrote a commentary that I know of. Wish I was something the third. Um, but it's also pretty cool about what the perspective is he's writing from. Because he's you know, a Bible scholar, he's got a bunch of degrees, he's got all like the academic credentials. Um, but a couple things. He has a friend named Dan Allender who's a psychologist, and he wrote a book on the Psalms together with him about What are the Psalms supposed to do for us? And so a Christian from the academic disciplines and a Christian from psychology actually wrote another book just about how are these supposed to affect us as people? But there's a personal dimension here too. Trevor Longman III's wife has memorized the entire book of Psalms, which is pretty impressive. But talk about having a personal connection to somebody who delights in the law of the Lord, right? Who puts it before their heart and their mind and says, Man, I I just I want to be a person of wisdom, right? I want to be a person that knows and loves God. And that's the greatest thing, I think, when we look at, you know, people to get quotes from or who have done research on the scriptures. We're not just talking about somebody who's like, well, I'm gonna read a bunch of books and maybe figure out what they say. We're we're referencing people who say, Holy Spirit, would you speak to me? This is a God that I don't just study, but a God that I know. And man, is that my prayer? Is that our prayer? We don't want to just talk about the Bible as look at what's in this book. We want to say, friends, here's a God that I know. Family, here's a God that I know. And all the all the rulers and claims of wisdom of this earth are all eventually going to come to nothing. But there is a God in whom we can delight. There is a God who is the ruler of the universe, and I don't want to be in opposition to Him because it's not going to lead to our happiness. It's not going to lead to eternity. I want to go in through this gate. I want to go in through Psalms 1 and 2 and say, God, you are the king and you're the ruler of everything. And I want to find the wisdom that you have. And I don't want to step outside of that to all the lesser gods, the lesser authorities, the lesser kings, the lesser claims of those who want to influence me or change me or tell me what is wisdom. God, I want to just delight in who you are and your words. Athanasius in the fourth century said, you know, most of the scriptures speak to us, but the psalms speak for us. I think one of the greatest things we can do as we read the psalms, and we're going to do it probably pretty much every week in this series, is just pray them together at the end of the service, which means we're going to stand up again in a few minutes and we're going we're to read through this together. And I encourage us to, to pray them, to have this speak for us, to talk to God about, I want to be somebody who is flourishing like a tree. I want to be somebody who's happy because I know you. And God, you know, this kingship language, there's probably a couple things we don't understand in it. But God, I, I, I agree that you are the king. And I agree that Jesus will one day bring justice on this earth. And so God, I want to be with you. And I want to see you, God, accomplish that justice because you are right and you are fair and you are good against and above every other empire or authority or claim to power in this earth. First Chronicles 15, 19 has this little uh, excerpt where David takes a psalm And he hands it over to Asaph. And he says, here's a psalm. We're going to use it in worship. So when we do this together in the church, we're following the example of the scriptures. Hey, psalms, it's not just a personal thing. It's for us to do it together. And the cool thing is when we do this as a church, we don't just do it together with us, but we do it with the church around the world. Because the church in other places in Canada and the States has been doing this. The church in Africa and Asia is reading the psalms. And the church throughout the ages, the ages and all of time, has been reading and singing the psalms in worship. So when we're doing this, we're not just, in a spiritual sense, joining in with the other churches through time and history, but we're actually joining in with the same words that they used and praising God in the same language. N.T. Wright said this. N.T. Wright's a scholar in England. And he's talking about church services, the the order of service, and he's he's calling it liturgy, so that's why the word liturgy is in here. He's just talking about the order of a church service, and he says this, good worship ought never to be simply a corporate emoting session, a corporate upsurge of emotion, right? Like, emotion is good. We shouldn't just have emotion, though, but a fresh and odd attempt to inhabit the great unceasing liturgy is going on in all the time in the heavenly realms. We're joining in in the worship of heaven, right? As every church service from the time of Christ onward has been, we're joining in in the worship of heaven. And he says that's what those great chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, are all about. We talked a couple of weeks ago about what it's like to join in with those. We're joining in the worship of heaven. When we, when we worship in this church, we're, we're previewing what it's going to be like. We're prophesying what eternity is going to be. We're telling you this is what we're going to be doing, worshiping God forever. And then he speaks about the Psalms. He says, the Psalms offer us a way to do that. Offer us a way of joining in a course of praise and prayer which has been going on for millennia and across all cultures. And so as we close today, I'm going to invite Jerry to come back up. We're going to say these two Psalms. And I want to invite you just to join in with the main message of these Psalms. Number one is, I want to be a happy person. I want to be somebody that has deep roots and loves Jesus. I want to be somebody who is a Psalm 1 person. And Psalm 2 is, I acknowledge Jesus as the King, and I, I have my allegiance to Jesus as the King. I look forward to Christ's return as it's prophesied in Revelation. We get to know even more of what he's called us to and even more of who he is. So I'm going to invite you, would you stand with me, please? And let's say Psalms 1 and 2 together. We'll worship together with those around the world, with those who have said these Psalms in history, and with the angels and the saints in heaven. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the Lord, the kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him.